Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast here on the New Books Network. This is my 200th episode. I'm, of course, your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. For this episode, uh, we're going to switch things up. We're going to do a flip interview. Um, Rather than having a guest, uh, I have a fantastic host and I'll be the guest. I have the, the distinct pleasure and privilege of being interviewed by Dr. Krista Kuberi. She's a senior fellow at Yoga Alliance. Uh, She's a wellness expert and executive and educator, and she teaches across the gamut. She teaches in the credit setting at universities. She teaches at YTT. She teaches in the corporate setting. And of course, she's been a guest of this podcast to feature her own academic work. So what do I do here? Uh, Dr. Kuberi, the floor is yours. (laughs) So excited to be here and and what a fun and amazing opportunity to get to come on to this podcast and to get to interview you, Raj, and to introduce you. And for some of you who do not know, uh, Dr. Raj Balkaran is a prolific scholar of Indian mythology and a seasoned online educator. He teaches online at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies and at his own school of Indian wisdom, where he applies Indian wisdom teachings to modern life. He also runs a thriving one-on-one spiritual council practice and serves at McMaster University's chaplain of Indian spirituality. So he also has quite a distinguished uh, background and why we are here today on this 200th episode is to talk about Raj's new book. His new book is The Stories Behind the Poses, the Indian Mythology that Inspired 50 Yoga Postures. And as somebody that is very much steeped and versed in in the yoga world and the yoga industry, I will say that this is a book that is sorely needed. Uh, Many yoga teachers and educators are really interested in understanding why these names of poses, where these come from. And to be quite honest, there's not a lot of information out there. So not only well-written, beautifully illustrated, but also needed book. Um, and I think going to be incredibly well-received by the yoga community. So A, congrats, um, and B, excited to talk about this book today. So um, I guess to start with Raj, why this book? 
That's a great question. I never in a thousand years saw myself doing an illustrated book. And I didn't see myself doing a public book quite so soon. Um, I've done a couple of academic books, but I thought I'd give it five years so folks realize that for me, independent scholar was in code for failed academic. But <laughs> I ended up teaching a, a course called Yoga and Hindu Mythology at Yogic Studies in um, November, December 2020. And a month or so later, I get an email from, from Quarto Press. Uh, Leaping Hair Press is a subdivision of, of, a, of a publisher called Quarto. And uh, they said, hey, would you like to do a, an illustrated uh, book on the stories behind the yoga poses? Turns out one of my yoga study students, she has a, a, a tribe, a yoga tribe of her own. For whatever reason, the vast majority of my students are teachers and coaches and and all that. And so she shared, you know, uh, she shared in an ad hoc way, some of what she learned in the course. One of her students works at this publishing house and said, Hey, that's a great idea for a book. And they came knocking at my door and I thought, well, this is nothing that I would have envisioned, but clearly opportunity is knocking. And so many people who come to the school of Indian wisdom uh, are yoga practitioners and yoga teachers, despite the fact that we don't do yoga proper until this book so it sort of landed in my lap i embraced the challenge we we had a couple of pressures during the pandemic but the book is a pandemic baby <laughs> and uh, we got there so I'm, I'm actually delighted to see it and initially i thought the images would be sort of a nice added touch now uh, beholding it the images are absolutely integral the illustrator um uh, david coming on she did a phenomenal job and i can see how this will be so much more engaging especially for visual learners yeah and i think especially for you know a lot of the yoga teachers are a more Western audience. So I think the stories not only bring some of the, the rich history and context of, of the why behind the yoga, but I do think the illustrations really bring it to life um, for a lot of us. And then I, I especially enjoy the fact that most of the illustrations, if not all of the illustrations are actually deities themselves. So it really puts that whole, you know, secular and spiritual uh, in conversation, which I liked. Indeed, I did not realize that the the postures would be embodied by the actual deities who were in, who I was, I thought, okay, if I'm describing a particular, for Anantasana, you know, Vishnu's sort of serpent couch, I thought, okay, well, you'll have some, you know, um, uh, individual in a yoga pose, and then maybe Vishnu somewhere in the background. But actually, I think the combination of having the deity in the posture is this beautiful, what I call Parampara 2.0. It's this beautiful kind of um, <laughs> sort of um, fusion, right? It's, it's, it's my job to make this accessible and meet people where they're at. And I understand the deities, they understand the asanas. So why not combine them, right? I mean, I 100% agree. And I think that's the the sort of cognitive dissonance that we often see in the yoga world that it's not because people don't want to understand again, it's oftentimes because either there's no information, there's bad information, or there's a ton of things they can Google, but it, again, it doesn't make it real. So this combination, these 50 different stories that not only you see the, 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 
the pose itself. You see this sort of myth embodied in the pose. Um, and then it also has on the page, it has themes, which I think, again, for uh, for a more popular audience, I think that's incredibly helpful to say, why would I, what, what does this myth say? And how is this theme relevant in a way that I could create a yoga class, for instance? Was that intentional? Yeah, yeah, without question, for the, the audience, they wanted a, a resource for uh, interested members of the public who are, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hybrid, uh, equally for, for folks who are interested in understanding the context and the roots of yoga, and for folks who love story and mythology, Indic or otherwise. And so, um, really, I mean, I've kind of uh, broken the seal, so I think I have another book or two in me for for uh the public in the not too distant future but it's written for people who just want an accessible rendition of the mythology and then a spiritual gloss on you know what this might mean and really it's written for it's written to be uttered aloud so it's Mm -hmm. written attentive to to cadence to alliteration Right. It's written such that um, uh, if nothing else, folks can actually share it with themselves, with their colleagues, with their students out loud. And that's a dimension of writing that I think sometimes gets lost, particularly in academic writing, having a, a flavor, right? just having having how would the sound on the tongue? Right. Yeah. No, I think that's really important. And I will say when Anya and I were writing our book, I can speak oftentimes like a regular human being, but the second that I start writing, it comes out in this very long jargon, sort of all my academic training, which isn't bad. But again, if you're writing a book that isn't meant for the five people that are in the niche area that you study, it is really important to think about how does this, how does this sound and who am I, who am I speaking to? So is this audience, I mean, as you said, for those who, who, you know, love myth as well as those who want to use it as a teaching sort of tool, um, is that, is that when you were thinking about the audience for yourself, or was it more just your sort of rich tradition and the ways in which you could tell these stories for multiple audiences that that really dictated the way in which you wrote these stories or what stories you included? Yeah, it's a couple of things in passing. First of all, there are 10 people in your scholarly niche, not five, because you do yoga studies, <laughs> <laughs> maybe 12 even. Hey, <laughs> Secondly, there's lots of us. <laughs> Secondly, I can't tell you with the learning curve of starting to entrepreneur in 2016 and writing pages for courses on, on websites. And then I'm, I'm writing in my academic voice and I'm getting, you know, feedback at every turn that this, you know, this isn't really accessible. I wanted to call the book. I really badly wanted to call the book mythology in motion because <laughs> it's just, and I thought, okay, well, but really uh, perhaps that's a better title for, for, for uh, um, a scholarly article. <laughs> Agreed. Yes, this is very clear about what you're getting, which I think is important. (laughs) Stories around the poses, so there's still a bit of a learning curve, but accessibility is key, and it's taken me a long time to learn that um, of the many hats that I wear, the one that I go to bed with and wake up with is the hat of the teacher, the educator, Mm -hmm. the learning facilitator, and so when I research, it's to share. When I write, it's to teach, to teach myself, to teach others what I've learned. Right. And so for me, this book, more than anything I've written, is written in my teaching voice. 
it's written in the voice where there was a room full of people interested in ancient Indian stories and or yoga postures and or all things Indic. It's, it's written primarily in my teaching voice, but where my teaching voice overlaps with a touch of my, of, of, of the bard, you know, <laughs> the poet. Right. Yeah. And again, you know, I think more and more as somebody that bridges the worlds of, you know, academia and, and business, right. The, I, I think we do a disservice in keeping ourselves siloed in these worlds, right. So ways in which we can share and you are sharing years of research and understanding and expertise, but not having to demonstrate it again through, through big words, but being able to demonstrate it through the sort of illustrative nature of this book, right? The, mm. the way in which it makes your, it makes you see these stories. And then not only that, I like that it has the mythology, it has the themes, but at the end, you also include a, a sort of um, synopsis or summary of, if you will, of, of the why behind the connection between the story and pose itself. Um, and I think, think that was really helpful or could be a really helpful tool as well. Um, was that again, the publisher or was that an add-on for, for your, your own sort of edification or. Well, you know what I found myself after it's sort of internalized that I would tell the story in an accessible and colorful way that dramatizes the themes, you know, you have you know, what a thousand words or whatever read story, right? So you've got to make it succinct, and you know you've got to be a bit of a, a a script writer, right? But also, I found that naturally towards the conclusion, I would always pan out and talk about the psycho spiritual significance, talk about where this fits. I would always pan out anyhow and they just decided hey <laughs> that thing you're doing at the end why don't we make it an actual thing and italicize in the put a little beautiful flower before it and here that's the commentary mm. on that story um so they sort of divided my natural style in that way and then once the, after i submitted a couple of stories they indicated they do that then i was just much more conscious about what i'd say for the in my brain the spiritual gloss of the narrative but it's primarily narrative it's not talking about story. It's sharing story. And, you know, initially I thought to myself, well, this is a book for, for uh, public practitioners, primarily uh, aficionados of, of various kinds of myth of, of all things Indic, as I say. And, you know, I sort of undersold to myself the extent to which this is of use to academics and for academic courses and you know what's hilarious i'm currently teaching a course that i designed I'm, i have a, i'm filling in for a year at the university of lethbridge uh, they asked me if i'd do a summer course apparently last uh, the last semester went well so i said sure and any sort of senior level indic course right it's called myths of india mm. And so this book wasn't out in time. So I ended up going with uh, Dimit and Van Butenen's relatively dated, I think from the 70s, you know. Uh, oh, yeah, class- I've taught that classical- course. I read that book. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> classical Hindu mythology. And it's and I haven't read it in a, in, in a, in a, in a dog's age, right? Like it's, it's maybe sometime in undergrad, perhaps. And it's going through it for the coursework with my students, and having to tweak certain things like caricatures of the goddess, like it's fantastic. And it was great for its time. It scholarships moved a little bit on certain issues. And, and then it dawned on me, wait, there really aren't that many um, um, compilations where folks get 50 snippets from the epics and Puranas in English. 
right? No. And I used, I started, you know, recommending to be quite honest to some of my yoga students, especially not necessarily the college students, but yoga students to go buy children's books, Indian mythology, children's books, because some of the scholarship that's out there is, or the direct translations, right. From the Sanskrit isn't again, accessible in ways that you would say, okay, how do I translate that in a practical manner for not only modern society, but modern yoga, postural yoga in the West. Right. So I think, you know, the connecting between the myths and the postures and then making it this narrative again, I think is there's a huge, there's a space for this book, uh, in many, in many ways. Um, do you think in terms of the connection between quote unquote, modern postural yoga or post-lineage yoga, um, and Indian myths themselves, do you think it's important that we still continue? I mean, obviously you wrote the book, but do you think for a teacher, do you think it helps their practice or their spiritual path in order to have that understanding um, inherently? Or is it more for your understanding, like just for context? So imagine um, in an alternate universe, you know, you know, a a couple of the atoms went askew in some alternate quantum universe. And we have this alternate reality where um, uh, somehow um, yoga postures stemmed from a Western context. And perhaps they used um, Hebrew or biblical terms. Perhaps there was something, you know, let's, let's just combine all our world and say something called Moses Asana. Great. <laughs> and perhaps there are people who were dissenters. Or, I mean, we have it. We have right, like, things. So not and, without and, the realm of possibility. Continue. And, <laughs> and perhaps um, there are people who, you know, couldn't deal with the Hebrew or the, or the traditional terms or the name Moses, even though it's anglicized. And they wanted to call it parting pose because the pose <laughs> entails your arms totally out, like, you know, like Christ on the cross almost, right? And the pose was called Moses pose. And it was named that way because it's an enactment of Moses's parting of the Red Sea by God's grace in Exodus. Now, whether or not we believe there was an actual Exodus historically or, or religiously, dogmatically, doctrinally, nevertheless, understanding the narrative is only going to ameliorate uh, the, your understanding of what the pose is driving at and why it's named after that act or juncture in the Hebrew Bible that's so pivotal for the psyche of the ancient Israelites and those who share in that worldview and share in that mythos. Whether or not you share in the mythos insofar as thinking that it's literally historically true is, you know, what if you had a, a you know, Balrog pose, where it was Gandalf saying, you shall not pass. Now, nobody cares. Everyone knows that's fiction. But understanding what Gandalf is doing by bringing down that staff, and when you're enacting that in the pose, understanding the consciousness of setting a boundary, it's kind of like a downward-facing um, um, warrior pose, or nope, Daksha, we're going to cut your head off. No more. It's not happening. Understanding something of the story will only help you to understand the pose irrespective of your personal beliefs. For sure. Does that answer your question? I can't even remember your question anymore, but. No, I think it, I mean, it definitely does, right? It's not just about the context. It's about how the context then uh, 
inhabits your understanding and the way in which you you embody the pose and you know the the book that Anya and I wrote on on yoga also has a chapter on myth because it is so important right and the ways in which the stories that we create to understand the world and then how we enact those stories in the world and if you're going to be a yoga practitioner I think it's really important that you understand that and also I think there's a beauty in the idea of yoga that you know, these poses are expressions of ways of embodying different forms of being because we're all connected to all of these different, you know, deities of, of being a warrior and a swan and, you know, all the things because because that's that's the sort of space I think the tradition leaves for multiplicity that I think these, that is really important that we can also take from that. Like you can embody the multiplicity of, of consciousness as practice. Well, um, the Ten Commandments are teaching in an overt, just to, bore, to use one example that would be well known to people, the Ten Commandments are teaching in an expositional, direct, conscious, do and don't sort of way. Um, but the theophany at sci-fi teaches, the parting of the sea teaches, the compassionate father who feeds his hungry children by bringing bread from the sky teaches. The narrative teaches you in an extraordinarily powerful unconscious manner it sort of um impacts you when you least expect it it forms your personhood this is why we tell children stories and they're universalized Uh, right that's the thing about these and that's why they have specific themes and like you said the sort of spiritual uh story that you tell at the end about the larger sort of grander meta narrative if you will or or larger picture of these myths, which myths are these larger pictures of existence, right? That, that we can find both ourselves in and we can also probably find higher power in. And so I think that that again points back to the, the fact that you have these illustrations and it's like, hey, I do that pose, but that's Sarasvati in that pose instead of me, which is a really cool, <laughs> you know, sort of interesting well, thing. Um, storytelling to my mind is meaning making and mythological storytelling is like the the deepest meaning making we can come up with like the guts of existence we're trying to traumatize and so for me whether a story is historically true to me for me personally from a practitioner or yogic perspective is uh, not the best order of analysis it's it's um it's definitely spiritually true it's definitely emotionally true. What work is it doing? What work is it doing in consciousness? If Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings can move millions of people, these stories can do the same, irrespective of their historical veracity. Um, why, uh, why else would there be stories named after sages, for example? What's that random? They just ran, you know, the ancient Indians ran out of words. Like there's so many terms they could use. Why on earth would they pick a sage's name? for a particular yoga pose, unless there's something about the character disposition biography of the sage that is related to the, the, the what I think of in my mind is the, the mode, the mood, the mindset, the bhavana of the pose. Um, Durvasasana, Durvasas, irascible, angry, incarnate of the wrath of Shiva, cursing at every turn. Um, you'd curse at every turn too if you had to stand like that all day. <laughs> Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, even things like, you know, Vashishtha, Vashishthasana is something people do all the time. But I would say that the average yogi and even sadly, maybe even the average yoga teacher doesn't even understand, as you said, that sort of meaning making behind 
this, this sage and why you would find this extension and this, you know, both complicated and lifted leg pose. You, you know, I think that there's something really wonderful about understanding uh, and, and placing yourself as a meaning making machine as a human being within these larger meaning making and seeing yourself as, as what does it feel like, you know, to be wise <laughs> when, when things are not necessarily easy. <laughs> So that exactly. sort of, that sort of situation, I think, is really really important for um, the the millions of people that are now practicing yoga. And I think you know we understand too that that a lot of yoga practitioners are still fairly new to this thing called yoga, and maybe um, were exposed to it in a sort of fitness class, but then had this this experience of like wait, I'm having this sort of deeper spiritual experience. This, what does this mean? And as they begin to dive deeper and want that context, I think this is the sort of book that will help provide that in a way that is uh, not off-putting and not off-putting because the stories are off-putting, but off-putting because like you said, it's it's readable, it's bard-like, it's, it's lyrical and it's pretty il- illustrations on top of having these stories that are packed with meaning and packed with um, significance that people can draw out and people can use in their own practice or to teach others uh, about these yoga practices. So, yeah, um, yeah, I think that's a couple points that just come to mind as you're speaking. Um, so many, I mean, uh, the school of Indian wisdom is popular by yoga people and I've done nothing to teach yoga or attract yoga people. It's just people who are interested in yoga or Indian spirituality who they want to learn What's more, and, and, and to my mind, on one extreme, you know, yoga is a classical Hindu darshana. It's a philosophical school of waking up, of, 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 of realizing, uh, you know, moksha uh, on the one extreme, and it has a particular historical and theological connotation. And then on the other extreme, um, yoga is, um, 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 <laughs> um, I was teasing, on, I just did an Instagram live with, uh, with someone, and I was teasing that it's ethnic exercise. <laughs> It's, it's exercise it's it's fitness with you know a little bit of you know a little bit of brown sugar sprinkled in there somewhere you know so there are these two extremes and really i'm i'm i, I value freedom and i think that <laughs> there are millions of people in millions of spaces and i think folks can approach it and if they can benefit from it wherever they're at um it's like i've created this this wonderful um set of dishes on the buffet for the global village people can eat them and do what they want with them some people want to learn how to make this kind of food some people aren't interested at all some people want to learn what goes into it some people not at all anybody can benefit from the stories it's a question of whether or not someone's interested in applying it to their practice what i find so interesting is that the stories will 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 enrich your consciousness whether or not you use them for yoga practices and and, yeah. and and yoga will do that as well, whether or not, you know, you, you're aware of it on some level. But I, I just really feel like people are where they're at. And for the people, the many, many people, and actually you pointed this out even before I met most of these students where you, you were like, I know so many people who want that book. I think those are your exact words. And I'm like, okay, but people are hungry. They're really spiritually hungry. Mm-hmm. right and for those who are intellectually spiritually emotionally hungry for these stories and, and and the ways in which they may illumine this thing called the human experience um that's who this book is for 
and it need not it need not be it's bereft of dogma right like i think the stories themselves invite multiple interpretations and my hope is that it empowers people to see what they see in the stories and tell it the way they feel a call to tell it if that makes sense. Well, no, I think that points to, to sort of the beauty of yoga itself as union, but also the idea of it. And even of all these poses with, with not only one myth, but myriad myths behind the poses, all sorts of ways that you can do the poses, modify the poses, experience the poses, et cetera, right? Points back to that, that sort of, um, not like, uh, it's diversity and unity, right? It's like the idea that there's so much diversity in that space and that in all of that, all of us belong, right? And these poses help to teach these sort of universalized stories of both, you know, belonging on the spectrum of experience of, of good to not good, which we also all experience, which I think um, is part of that. The myths are universal, that we are humans having individualized experiences uh, diverse experiences, but human experiences. And from this perspective, human experiences that are connected to this sort of higher spiritual. And as you said, you know, I think people are hungry for spirituality right now. And we live in a, a place where there's lots of choice and yoga provides a, a non-dogmatic spirituality where part of it is embodied experience. Um, but I think this book gives the embodied experience some context, which I very much appreciate. And I think a lot of other yoga teachers and yoga students would as well. So, you know, yeah, I knew there's a reason why yeah. I knew there was a variety of reasons why I asked you instinctively to do this flip interview, but I think we, we, we share an alarming amount in terms of how we view myth and yoga and story. So uh, I think that was very well said. No, and I think, like I said, when I when I did say this is a book that's needed, I just, as somebody that's also, you know, practiced yoga for over 20 years and been a teacher of yoga for a really long time, the amount of times that students are like, well, well where do I, how do I know more about this? Where do I go? And I would give them like 1970s, like Puranic text type stuff. And then they'd be like, yeah, I, thank you. <laughs> so it didn't live for them. This more is more of a living sort of uh, narrative. So, um, but well-researched, which I think that's the, that's the point where uh, I'm hoping we're moving in the yoga space is um, lots of people doing it, lots of people experiencing spirituality, but then also having texts and having books and having folks uh that that have their own lived experiences or their own research to be able to share it in a way that it, it becomes responsible right this book doesn't feel like it's co-optive it doesn't feel like it's necessarily commodified and at the same time uh, it doesn't feel like it's it's for a very select few which i think that's the balance that that people are trying to find so that's the idea that was this as inclusive as possible <laughs> yeah um you know one of the driving uh, one of the driving forces of my particular mission in this life is accessibility. And so part of why the podcast fit like a glove is because the, the, the mandate of New Books Network is to render accessible to the public what the heck we do with the Academy toiling for God knows what. Um, and so it's, and similarly, you know, I try to write accessibly as a scholar or, or at least make arguments in a way that make common sense. Um, so the book for sure is aiming to be accessible to anybody who loves language and stories and and uh, indic ideas. I'm I'm really glad we haven't spoken at all since you 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 looked at the book, but I'm glad that you enjoyed the actual style 
Mm-hmm. Very much. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. And I think too, you know, prior to this, there's like Sanjay Patel's uh, big book or little book of Indian deities, right? Which was wonderful. But again, the stories were there and they were beautiful and they were accessible, but the yoga connection wasn't there. Um, so this is that, that book that really, again, bridges that space. So I liked it. I also think that, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that are taking these illustrations and doing all sorts of fun things and getting tattoos and stuff like that from this book. <laughs> what have I begun? It's great. Get tattoos. Why not? Um, yeah. We need stickers. We need stickers of these. The illustrations yeah, maybe stickers. are, are, are... <laughs> stickers <would> be amazing. <laughs> the illustrations are luscious. Um, would you, would you like me to share any of it with you? Oh, yeah. If you would love to read one of the stories, that would be amazing. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, they're all fairly short. Um, is is uh, Hanuman Asana fairly popular in the practitioner world? Hanuman Asana is probably one of the, the most popular stories that gets told, I would say. And yes. is it typically translated as monkey pose? Or, or how how is it typically referred to? I mean, they typically, I would say people leave it with Hanuman. Sometimes people say splits, <laughs> splits pose, but I would splits. say they say Hanuman pose or. Sure. Yeah. So, so for those listening, there's, there's, there's this image of, of Hanuman and Hanuman, uh, the great, the great monkey person and, and devotee of Rama in splits pose. I mean, I honestly am so stoked about the images. I just, you know, I, I almost feel like I want to uh, commission, <laughs> commission her for something else. <laughs> These images are so luscious, but, um, uh, see, part of the challenge in coming up, uh, maybe we can talk about my process if you're interested a little later in the podcast, but some of the stories, I mean, you've got a particular tale, an Upakyana from the Mahabharata, a particular tale where it's, it's pretty, you know, you read it, you chew on it, you spit it out in English in a way that you're, you know, and, and these aren't just translations, they're retellings, right? They're told for our times, for our culture, for what's happening now. But then you have like, how do you convey the backdrop of the entire epic Ramayana? <laughs> you have to gloss over a great deal and just kind of call and give a snapshot. So um, shall I read? Shall I read one? Yeah, please read. read. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, this is for uh, uh, Monkey Pose. It's page uh, 77 in the book, uh, Hanuman Asana. The story is called uh, The Leap of Faith. <clears throat> There was once a great prince named Rama, who was an incarnation of Lord Vishnu. At one time, Rama was made to undertake exile in the forest for 14 long years. Accompanying him in the forest was his wife Sita and his faithful brother Lakshmana. They all renounced the royal life to live as forest hermits for the duration of their exile. While there, you know, we're glossing over a great deal of the epic, of course, to set the stage. While there, Rama discovered a sophisticated race of simian beings living in great cities in the middle of the forest. These monkey people called themselves the Vanaras. Greatest among them was Hanuman, unmatched in strength, speed, and loyalty. He was no ordinary monkey man. Hanuman was the son of the wind god Vayu, hence his great strength and speed. He was the first of the Vanaras who met Rama while roaming in the forest, and there was an instant spark between them. Theirs was, a power, theirs was a powerful soul connection. So much so that the instant they met, Hanuman knew in his heart that he was meant to serve and protect Rama for the rest of his days. Hanuman pledges allegiance and loyalty to Rama, who gladly accepted it since the love between them was mutual. Once, while in the forest, the demon King Ravana kidnapped 
um, Rama's wife. I mean, they gloss over this paragraph where uh, Rama's wife is kidnapped and they all, um, there's a search party and, and various factions go north. One goes north, one goes east, one goes west. And Hanuman himself, he doesn't want to be slow them anybody. So he takes, he goes in the southern direction and um, he knew the other parties uh, were empty handed. And uh, he ends up at the tip, the southern tip of India. Um, weeks turned into months and the three search parties came back empty-handed meanwhile Hanuman had reached the southern tip of India also without any sign of Sita he gazed with dismay at the seemingly unending sea before him Hanuman knew of the island kingdom of Lanka and he knew he must venture there to look for Sita before returning completely empty-handed but he had no means of crossing the sea if only he had a boat he doubted he would ever be able to cross the ocean and complete his task and yet he had pledged allegiance to his beloved Rama, and so he must find a way. Where there's a will, there's a way. The powerful Hanuman sat on the banks of the sea and kneeled in prayer, looking for divine inspiration for the impossible task ahead of him. Hanuman was not only physically strong, but also possessed tremendous strength of character. Faith and devotion are true tests of strength. He prayed to his father, the wind god Vayu, and asked for help, gently cupping his hands so that he may receive whatever grace may descend from the heavens. Then, instantly, he knew what he must do. He gathered his strength and summoned every iota of faith he could muster, chanting the name of Rama, 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 all the while. Then he backed up and took a running leap towards the horizon. He kicked off with his back foot as his front foot pierced the air in front of him. In a split posture defying gravity, he hurled himself through the air, propelled by the power of belief, fueled by grace itself. The great leaping monkey succeeded in crossing the sea, flying above the waters and landing on the soil of Lanka. He took a moment off for his thanks to the divine for helping him realize the true extent of his abilities and carried on to find Sita in the court garden. She was delighted to hear news of Rama's search and was delighted to have fulfilled and he was delighted to fulfill his duty to bring news back to Rama of his beloved Sita. Thanks to Hanuman's faith, loyalty, and bravery, Rama was able to learn of Sita's whereabouts, marshal a great army, and fight a long and arduous war to win back her freedom. So this is just a, a summation of the Valmiki Ramayana through the, the, that particular frame. And then all of the stories have a, a few sentences at the end of what I think of as a spiritual gloss italicized. Um, uh, we are more than we think we are, and with effort and faith, we can realize this potential. Hanuman is a powerful symbol of this realization. Like all of us, he is a primate through and through. And yet, through his faith and devotion, he is able to sublimate his animal impulse to attain divine status. Hanuman is peaceful, only exerting force in times of need to protect the imperiled. Also, Hanuman is a lifelong celibate. Through the sublimation of his libidinal forces, he's able to attain considerable spiritual power, which affords him great wisdom and great strength. Whenever you see Hanuman in iconography, notice that his tail is raised. A tail, like a spine, stems from the root. Hanuman's raised tail is a symbol, is a symbol of his raised kundalini power. We too can sublimate our based impulses and raise our awareness from the beastly to the divine. We too can transmute our animal instinct to integrate love, devotion, and spiritual power. When you engage this posture, remember the steadfast devotion of Hanuman, which garnered the grace to render the impossible possible. There's a snippet of the book. Wonderful. Yes, exactly. And each of these, you know, myths 
not only locates it, whether it's, you know, where, where does it come from? Does it come from some massive text like the Mahabharata or uh, is it from uh, later epic texts, et cetera? But then it, it does give that sort of, what, it, what does it mean sim- from a symbolic sort of perspective as well as a practical perspective? Again, if somebody's trying to put together a class and they might tell this story at the beginning or a little bit of it, what what are they trying to convey or how can they make that um, make sense for their students as a sort of universal theme, which again, I think um, many, many yoga teachers will very much appreciate uh, the opportunity to have something like this, some sort of a resource like this um, that is, is steeped in history. And, and in terms of your process itself, how did you come about these stories? Because there are lots of different variations on these myths um, and, and these ideas. So where was, what was your process in, in sort of knowing these or coming to these stories, these traditions? Yeah, the process is always a dialectic between your creative aspect and sort of your logical order. You know, perhaps your light or your left, your left and right brain, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, I knew there had to be 50 poses. I knew that there'd be five chapters. And so then to sort of think, well, what would, what makes sense? So we have a chapter on stories of Shiva for the first chapter. Then the second chapter, they're each 10, right? Uh, mm-hmm. basic arithmetic I can do and then it gets fuzzy after that but uh, <laughs> it's 10 <laughs> 10 Shiva stories like, <laughs> <laughs> 10 Shiva stories and then there are 10 Vishnu stories with Vishnu and his avatars then the most creative chapter is the middle chapter the third chapter is 10 stories related to uh, I connect them to goddess traditions mm. um, uh, the penultimate Chapter chapter four is um, the powers of the gods, various miscellaneous uh, uh, deities and their stories. And the last one is the wisdom of the sages. So poses named after sages. It took me a bit to come up with that structure, particularly that middle chapter. Um, but I opted to sort of plumb the depths of my memory and being and recall what I could recall from these stories first. Um, and then consult text second. Because what I wanted to do was to see what stayed with me in an embodied sense, what stories made sense to me as an individual, um, uh, you know, as, 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 as a scholar, as, uh, as a humanist, as a spiritualist, you know, like what, what makes sense to me um, and how does it make sense to me? And then I'd revisit the Sanskrit, you know, the vignette from the Purana or the epic and then see, okay, well, what are pieces that, you know, I could bring into sharper focus what pieces really serve the theme that sticks out in my mind you know there was a couple of times where you know what i think i might i might be reading this in um a way that's not fully aligned with the primary gist of the story so there were a couple of times where in going and part of my mo in scholarship is to do my best to become familiar with the narrative world mm-hmm. and let it teach me what it wants to teach me. And then I, I view my skill as a mythologist in, um, is really in showing what's in the story world, right? Like pointing to the story world. At the same time, we all have, we all have um, perspectives. We all have filters, right? And so others may do that better or differently. But it really was crucial to me to sort of feel out for myself 
why this story resonates so much, why I love it so much. What is it saying to me? What is it saying to anybody? Um, and so that was sort of my process. I mean, there were, you have to make decisions when they're 50 because on the one hand, 50 is a lot. On the other hand, there probably could have been easily 20, 30 more. Right. Well, and I so mean, have- depending upon who you ask, there could be 3000 more. Oh, <laughs> sure. But I mean, for, for the yoga postures. Yeah. But yes. for, yeah, for, 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 for actually short stories, there could have been hundreds more without question. And really I sort of just sat with it and I just churned it out. I wrote it as if I was writing narrative. I was mm-hmm. writing a blog post or some such thing, churned out the story, see what came to mind, went back and tweaked it where I had to. And <laughs> there came a time when, Oh my goodness, I was, um, <laughs> I'm thankfully uh, in, in very good health, but, <laughs> but in 2021, I was hospitalized twice for two months in a row. And then the third month, my computer decided to die. So um, July, August, and September were interesting, let me tell you. And this manuscript was due in October. <laughs> and so it was due October 1st. So at one point, uh, she was like, well, if we don't get it in by, by you know, October 15th latest, we can't have this out by Yogane next year. So actually, if you can believe it, I'd say a good third of this book was written between October 1st and October 15th. <laughs> Just because I had, it was like, okay, now's the time. You know, t- take, a, take, a, take a tip from Hanuman, summon grace, pray to Vayu, whatever you need to do. You got to leap across this ocean. <laughs> and- and it's done now exactly and then yeah. you take a deep breath <laughs> then you take a deep breath and, and exactly. move on and you know record a podcast in between or whatever you're doing <laughs> or whatever exactly however it is but now it's in the world it's available for for folks to to purchase uh where and how can they purchase it and is there anything that you want students to know or folks to know about the book specifically or what you're doing with it or where you'll be or how they can access it yeah, um, uh, easiest thing, you can get it from the publisher's website. I'd say the easiest thing for the same price, as far as I know, is just go on Amazon. Mm. Amazon, whatever your uh, .uk.ca.com, whatever. I mean, Amazon's probably the easiest way to, to grab the book. Um, and I would say that, um, interestingly enough, the book has really uh, become rooted in my curriculum at the school insofar I ha- as I fleshed out courses for each of the chapters there's a course on shiva stories there's a course on vishnu stories there's a course on you know goddess stories and there's a course on sage stories uh, coming up very soon um this summer it'll be available for download really anytime folks want i've created an official companion course for the book that's called the stories behind the poses and all of the curriculum at the school, it's all in response to what students want and need. And folks had so many questions on, you know, I, I leaked a bunch of the stories to them for right. the previous courses, right. As teaching tools. And so, so many questions rose, like, you know, how does it actually work? Why are the stories connected to the asanas? You know, the book doesn't have like a substantive introduction. It's not a scholarly book. Right. 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 Um, right. Or, um, you know, how do, how do we use it? Okay, we get that we can read it. We get that, you know, we can share it. I mean, that it's accessible, but, you know, they had a bunch of questions on, shall we read it during uh, asanas, before, after? Are there exercises that we can assign? And so this course is really geared towards applying the stories 
looking at meta themes across multiple stories like um, um, uh, overcoming obstacles, um, um, uh, divine decapitation, um, the sacred feminine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, divine knowledge. Um, so it's giving a 30,000 foot view of the book uh, with some key themes drawing on eight case studies. And the last module is on applying the stories. Like, how do you use them? How do you integrate them? Uh, what should you share? How? And uh, you can you can take a look at that course for anybody interested at courses.rajbalkran.com. That's the school's website, courses.rajbalkran.com. And right at the course page, you'll see the stories behind the poses companion course at the top of the page. And of course, people can always reach out to me if they're interested in, in, in curriculum questions or whatnot. I'm fairly easy to find for that stuff. So I want people to know that if, if you are very serious about applying it and, and gaining some pedagogical training on applying it, um, I have created a resource for that. So you're more than welcome to come and study with me. Um, and beyond that, enjoy the book. Enjoy the stories. Yeah. Well, enjoy the stories and, and great to hear that they're not only, you know, living, but then you also have a, a, the expertise to, to have sort of a backup or a comprehensive uh, response to the book itself. So definitely check out the course. Uh, I highly recommend the book for both, as you said, enjoyment uh, and beauty, aesthetic purposes, but also uh, in terms of practical purposes as a yoga teacher and as somebody um, that knows lots of yoga teachers, that this will be really useful for classes, for, for themes, um, and for sharing the deeper history, context, philosophy, and wisdom of the yoga traditions uh, with both yourself and your students. So thank you so much for writing this, Raj. As I said, needed book. Um, thank you so much for having me on on your 200th episode to, to be able to have a conversation with you about the book and, and get a little nerdy on the mythology front. And um, just very much appreciate this, appreciate you. And I'll kick it back over to you to leave any final thoughts or words or um, advice, anything you want to say to your students, to the listeners, to, to the New Book Network. Sure thing. Well, first of all, thank you so much for hosting this. That that time just flew by. That's when you know you're having a great conversation. Um, and but for me, I didn't have to do any work. I was kind of just you know you were driving. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so thank you very much uh, for those of you listening. As usual, you know, stay safe, uh, stay sane, keep keep listening, keep reading. Um, come study with me by all means if you're interested and. Keep enjoying uh, ancient Indian stories. Uh, take care until next time.